0: Before we get into this episode of Real Tall Tales, we'd like to issue a content warning. People who have suffered trauma from gun violence or gang violence may find the following episode triggering. When he was just 14, David Lee Windicher dropped out of high school and joined a gang for protection with the street name Red. At 16, he started his own gang. He was arrested 13 times and spent over seven months incarcerated as a juvenile. Now he's a lawyer fighting for those who don't have the resources to pay for justice.
1: My name is Munir McJohnny.
0: And I'm Cassandra Young.
1: You're listening to Real Tall Tales. Today with us, we have attorney David. David is not only an attorney, but an author, an activist, a TV show star, and the founder of Red, a nonprofit dedicated to ending recidivism. So David, how does someone go from being lawless to (laughs) a lawyer?
2: You know, every time I hear that, I still think it's hard to believe, even for myself, that the life I'm leading today started where it started. It's been a journey. I'm 41 now. I really started the turnaround at 19. And I would say right around the age of 34 is when I self-actualized. I found my purpose. But it was a lot of a struggle. It was despair. There was a lot of pain, poverty, tons of issues. I mean, there were seasons in life where the issues would change. My teenage years were dealt with poverty and dealing with corrupt law enforcement and the consequences of living in that type of environment. Then in my twenties, it was the rehabilitation effort where I focused on education. I thought of it being the cornerstone of growth. So I thought that the more that I learned, the more that I would grow. And in my thirties, I finally was able to get into law school. I convinced John Marshall here in Atlanta to give me a chance despite my criminal history. And then, Swearing in for Florida, we call it the battle for Florida, because even though I passed the bar here in Georgia and I felt like I was on my way, I still didn't feel whole given what had happened to me was in Florida. Mm -hmm. So I had to jump through all the procedural hoops to get licensed in Florida. And then I finally ended up swearing into the Florida bar in a courtroom where I was facing in 1996, 15 years in prison. So it was a bit surreal. That's when my purpose came about. So how did
1: you end up in 96 there, right? So from the story that I understand, your family moved back from Argentina to Miami. Correct. And, you know, you had a lot of issues, obviously, in your family. Mm -hmm. And that kind of kicked off this really career, right, that you were doing in criminal activity. So tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about that.
2: I'm going to back it up a little bit further even to where my parents initially moved from Buenos Aires to Los Angeles. Okay. And we were there living. My dad was a blue collar laborer and my two sisters were born there. My mom was a homemaker. She would watch after us while my dad would go to work. Well, in 1985, he was told that a work product that he provided was not adequate enough for him to be paid. And we were living on a check to check basis. Mm. So he went to the Los Angeles County trial court. He filed an action and they put him before a judge. When he went at the trial court level, he won because they provided him with an interpreter. Everybody thought it was sound. Months go by, no check comes in the mail. Instead, we get a notice to appear in court. We go back to court. It's civil matter, so they don't appoint counsel. They didn't give him an interpreter. We didn't have a oh, wow. to piss in. So he shows up and he loses. He lost not because he was wrong. He lost because he was foreign. And to me, as a seven-year-old watching a man who never quit on anything I knew about in his life, to watch him go through that, it just it planted seeds of bitterness in my heart. It was my first experience with the American jurisprudence system. And it made me believe that one day I would have to do something about that. Mm. And that moment is when I said, if I can do this, I will, I'm gonna become a lawyer. At seven years old, I was wow. thinking about becoming a lawyer. So we took whatever meager savings my father had and went back to Argentina, which was our safe haven. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, um It was such a learning experience for me. I got to really become fluent in the Spanish language. And then also understanding what poverty really means. Mm. I think people think that they're in poverty here in America, but they have zero clue what impoverished status truly means. I mean, we lived on a dirt road, a cinder block home with a plastic sheet roof. Our doors were made out of curtains. So that's poverty, but we had each other. So, and my dad busted his butt. For four years, he saved up enough money to get us back to America. He believed that his kids would have a better life trying to pursue the American dream. And he brings us to Miami. And we go back to an impoverished status. We're in Dade County. People that are familiar with South Florida and I say Dade County, they know there's either South Beach and Brickell, which is really nice, and the rest of it's hood. So here we are living in this environment. And poverty led to my first arrest at the age of 11. My dad bought us a bicycle that we could share, my brother and I. And the problem with the bicycle is that it was used. So the handlebar was stripped. So we couldn't tighten the handlebar. So I couldn't tow my brother anywhere. And in 1990, January 1990, it's the NFL playoffs. You know, we're soccer players and everybody's like, you guys are fast. We need you guys to come play with the rest of the kids. And so we wanted to go to this big pickup football game. That's like 10 miles from the house. And so I told my brother, I said, listen, I'm going to go steal a set of pegs. Just wait for me at the house and I'll come back and we'll go to the park together. So I take my bike, I go to this bicycle store, and you know, I'm a ginger. So I walk in and I'm nervous. I'm a little pink. I'm already <laughs> alerting the cashier and she's like, Hey, um, can I help you? I stay mum, further alerting her suspicions. I see a, a set of pegs. I do a beeline for them, snatch them off the shelf, put them in my pocket, run out. And I start pedaling as fast as I can on the bike. And again, my 11 year old mind couldn't wrap itself around the concept of trying to get away on a bike with a stripped gooseneck. So as soon as I start stroking the pedal standing up, the handlebar goes forward, I come crashing down, and I thought I got hit by a car because I'm suddenly way back up, and unbeknownst to me, Gary, who was uh, the owner of the bicycle store and a triathlete at that, he was in hot pursuit the entire time, and so he picked me up and he's like, you little fucking crook, you're going to go to jail, and he didn't lie. I mean, he called the cops, and the cops came out and handcuffed me. I'm 11 years old. I don't wow. understand poverty or anything they like that. They
0: handcuffed you at 11? They
2: handcuffed me at 11 years old. That they threw
0: seems—maybe th- I'm naive, but that just seems so excessive.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. Let me tell you, it was traumatizing.
0: Now, was it because of—I mean, I know a crime is a crime, but— was it because of the area of town you were in like
2: why i can't explain it i think you know what it is cassie i think that we were at the height of the get tough on crime movement Mm. you know so kind of everybody was guilty at that point the presumption of innocence didn't exist it didn't care what your situation was it was just punitive period and so they got me they handcuffed me they brought me to the police station i remember being so stressed in that moment because i was an a student at that time i didn't have behavior problems at home so my parents weren't expecting this And um, just to walk in, my mom walking in and to see the pain on her face, it just broke my heart. Like, why did she need to go through that? Because I was poor and I did something so stupid. And instead of being taught how to cope with poverty, the system made me resent Mm. my situation even more. So we go to court and the judge adjudicates me delinquent, right, put me on probation. They made me do theft deterrent programs. They made me do community service hours. And for a couple of years, I basically lost myself because- The friends that I had, I couldn't see anymore. And understandably so as a brand new parent, I wouldn't want my young son hanging out with the 11 year old on probation. I mean, it just doesn't sound normal, right? Like who would do that? So I was introverted because I was by myself all the time. Fast forward to middle school, we called it JFK. So you know how it is. If you're a JFK or MLK, you're in the ghetto, Mm -hmm. right? My parents, um, they bought me some clothes for the first week of school to feel good about myself. And I remember on the first Friday I'm walking home, and two kids approach me and say, hey, where are you heading? We're going that way. And I said, I'm going the same way. They asked if they could walk with me. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And we're talking about stuff kids talk about. I don't know. Whatever. I can't even remember the conversation. All I know is we're trying to be friends, it seemed like. I'm
0: looking at you as clearly my little ponies.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you definitely <a> <laughs> That was totally Yeah, yeah. Oh, what was the other one? Care Bears? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so... We get to this bridge and we have to cross over this bridge because there's a canal that kept the over to get into the neighborhood and when we get to this bridge i blocked out i don't remember what happened and i wake up a couple hours later and i am face down on the ground i stand up and i'm like did i get hit by a car or something because i'm looking around and my shoes are missing so i'm thinking i definitely got hit by a car and as i come to my shoes are not the only thing missing. My shorts are missing. My shirt is missing. My book bag is missing. These kids beat the shit out of me, Wow! left me there for dead, and stole all my stuff.
0: And then you're going to have to see them the next day at school right. again.
2: Yeah. So what they didn't know about me, though, was that my dad grew up boxing in Argentina. So I know how to use my hands. Now, I'm not advocating for violence, but I do advocate self-defense. And the following Friday, when I get to that bridge to cross over, they're there waiting for me. And I beat the shit out of them. I mean, I stomped these dudes.
0: They were waiting for you again. Yeah. they they are going to jump you again. They are going to take
2: my stuff again. Yeah. And so what they didn't realize is that I could take a hit. I just can't take a sucker punch. Most people can't. And so I stomped these dudes. And I told them, I said, don't fuck with me because I'm not the guy. I'm not the one that's going to take this from you. The next time I'm going to stomp you even more. And so fast forward to the next week at school, I get back to school. There's rumors about the ginger that could fight. The girls are giving me the twinkly eyes. So I'm the (laughs) big man on campus, you know?
0: That's
2: a big deal for a ginger, too. Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. It's mostly like a carrot top. You got to constantly be fighting it. But then, of course, fast forward to the following Friday, and you can imagine that there was the same two kids waiting for me at the bridge with all of their buddies. And that was a bad beating. I mean, I took a beat down. They smashed me so bad that you would not recognize my face. I had a swollen eye. I had a busted lip. I was mangled. And they took all my stuff again. And... You know it sucked that was my neighborhood at 13 so the school said don't worry about it he doesn't have to come in next week to school he can do his homework from home and so i did that for about a week and as i got better my mom said hey you know you're feeling much better we'll let you and christian my brother go to the movie theater so they drop us off at the movie theater and uh well, i saw my first murder it's just crazy this is like one thing yeah. after the other in this neighborhood we're watching the previews for honey i shrunk the kids and I remember vividly because when you see a murder you can even the sense of that day mm-hmm. I can still scent if that's even the word the way to term it So here we are we hear this commotion We step outside and these four dudes are just romping on someone. I mean, I and mean, then they're stomping this guy He's on the ground. They're just pounding him, but he's saying something to him So one of the attackers goes to pick him up and as he picks him up the victim spits on the guy's face and you can see the guy gets super irritated, drops him to the ground, pulls out a firearm and bah, one shot to the chest.
0: Right in the front of the in movie, the movie theater.
2: theater. Like no care in the world, just shot him. And they all ran out. And I'm standing 10 yards maybe from him. So you could smell the popcorn blended with the gunpowder, mm-hmm. And I had to jump over this body to get out of the movie theater.
0: What was your thought when you, I mean, was it to run? Was it to freeze? Was it to hide? Like, do you even remember or is it all kind of a a blur of senses? Just
2: scared. Because you didn't know if there's more of them and don't understand what's going to happen next. I mean, I don't, I didn't know what to even think. I was just, it was almost like, like a sort of a blackout where you don't really remember everything except that moment. Because I remember seeing that. And then the next thing I'm home, I ran as fast as I could. You're 13 years old at that point, you're crying the whole way home. And the worst part wasn't seeing that. This was the worst part. I went to sleep that night and I had a nightmare and that relived the entire moment. And I woke up when the bullet entered my body. So I was the one that got Mm. shot. So you compound the experiences of the previous few weeks. And then that moment, I mean, this is not the neighborhood you want your kids growing up in. So, What did I need to do? I knew that if I didn't do something, I would probably end up a statistic of this neighborhood. So what I decided to do was when I went back to school, I asked a guy that I knew was affiliated if I can get down. And the reason I knew he was affiliated is a few weeks before that situation, he's in the lunch line ahead of me and he's trying to pay for his cookie, but he can't find his money. So I go in my book bag, I pull out four quarters, I drop it down on his tray, I don't say anything. And he just looks at me, he's like, who is you, dog? And I said, my name is David. And he said, Nah, homie, you can't be walking around the hood that white talking about your name is David. You gonna get your ass kicked every day. It's <laughs> like <laughs> I already know about that. Like, yeah. I'm a ginger. Yeah, I know. I like I've been there. <laughs> and so, you know, he said, from now on, you go by Red. And that's how my nickname was born. So mm-hmm. he gave me a pound, and he's like, you Red from now on. And mm-hmm. so, leading up to that day, I will see him in the hallways. He was a couple years older than me. I think he was maybe in ninth grade and I was in seventh, but he had nice clothes, relatively speaking, going back, you know, Carl, Kanai, FUBU, all the stuff that you wouldn't ever (laughs) wear now. But he had those clothes and he had a car. So I knew something was up because Mm. unless you were up to something in these neighborhoods, you didn't have that. And so I would always see him. We always pay each other respect, talk a little bit. And I realized this dude's hanging out with a bunch of dudes. They're all wearing the same color. I'm not stupid, right? So I'm like, hey, man, how do I get down? And he says, well, you either got to be initiated or you got to get jumped in. Initiated means you got to do something stupid like, you know, I don't know, whatever the case may be. Just go beat somebody up or something. Or you got to fight your buddies. So I, I told him, I said, why don't we do this on Friday at 3 o'clock because I'm used to getting my ass kicked right around <laughs> that time. So that's exactly what happened. I came out of school, and he's out there, and he comes up, and he says, are you ready? And I thought, I'm fighting the dudes that are standing behind him. But instead, he throws the first punch, caught me off guard, and this is how it started. And so, of course, you get caught off guard, you hit the ground. So I hit the ground, got right back up, and I just kept fighting. I wouldn't stop because I know this is going to sound super sappy, but the reality was this was my first life lesson. If I wanted to survive my neighborhood and change the way that the future looked compared to the last three weeks— I needed to do this and get back up no matter mm-hmm. how much it hurt so that I could survive and have some protection.
0: It was a crossroads for you. Yes, right. It was exactly. going to determine the course of your childhood,
2: honestly. I could have been dead if it wasn't for that, frankly speaking. I mean, I don't regret joining a gang. I do not regret joining a gang. I learned a lot, and I think I got out in time. You know, I feel like I retired and graduated from it before it was too late, before I could have had some undesirable fate.
0: It's really interesting to look at a gang as sort of this subculture of protection, because most people will look at gangs as violent or criminal activity or something bad. But really, for you as a kid, you credit it with keeping you alive.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't change anything about it. And the one thing that I always try to help create awareness about is, yes, gangs do commit violent acts, but you would be shocked at the compassion that these individuals mm-hmm. have for one another and for their community, and how much they invest into their community—they do far more than the government ever does for their communities. They do book bag drives, shoe drives. I'm talking about—they take their money that they make, yes, selling illegal narcotics, but they invest it back into their communities. are the people who understand poverty—it's like Robin Hood in some ways. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, that's a really good way to put it because. You're frowned upon because you're doing these criminal things, but somehow you're trying to pick your community up Mm -hmm. in the process. And America tells you, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. What are you going to judge me when I do it the way I want to do it? Yeah,
0: It's almost like they're exactly the politicians that you would want. Somebody who understands what you're going through and actually tries to course correct and fix it and help the community. Mm -hmm. But it's just the way they go about it is not... How do I say this? Like accepted.
2: Yes. And especially in the current times we are now in the state of our politics. I mean, the kind of stuff you're seeing now at the highest level, if you see that stuff in the gang world, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some retribution for that. You would not be in power very long if you go rogue like that.
0: Interesting.
2: Mm -hmm. So I studied criminology a lot and I love like gang culture.
1: right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you learn, at least in the books, is, you know, the main reasons people join is power,
2: family and money. Mm -hmm. Right. Would you say those are true? Power, yes, family, yes, money, yes, but there's also protection, survival, common ground, Mm. relatability with people. You know, I would give you one example of the GDs, the Gangster Disciples, they shifted completely in the 90s. They went from a violent group to a pro-community group. And you don't see that very often until the initial individuals get a little older and they realize like, look, we can minimize the violence mm. and we can enhance the impact. And I know we're having a conversation that most people will hear and say, that's crazy. Right. Yeah. That's insane. But unless you've walked it, unless you've been in it, yeah. unless you've studied it, you can't judge it because again, I don't regret being in a gang. It taught me more about life than my bachelor's degree taught me. Frankly, than I learned in law school. i learned how to be a lawyer by practical stuff working. Yeah, You know, I learned more stuff in the streets and it's carried over in life. I think the reason that I get along with so many people and have a vast network is because I don't judge anybody. And that's one of the things we mm. never would do down there. We would always say, we don't understand this person's circumstance. Why don't you pay attention before you judge someone? Because they may be able to help you and you might be able to help them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting dynamic for the gangs. I, you know, I, I'm not promoting for your kids to go get in the gang. When your daughter's born, definitely don't let her get in the <laughs> gang. But, you know, there's some good And some bad.
0: Well, it shows you that, you know, there are two sides to every single coin. Like, it is easy to sit here and be like, oh, gang, it's awful, it's bad, let's, you know, excommunicate it. Mm -hmm. But hearing it from your point of view, it was actually a saving grace in a way. And it helped you build community. And I'm sure you use it now in your legal work every day. Like, it must make you an infinitely better lawyer because Mm -hmm. you actually understand the struggle that your clients have gone through.
2: Yeah, and they're in their most perilous moment of their life. I mean, they're compromised where their liberty is at stake. And when they come to my office, they see what I've been through and the climb and they realize, hey, I'm not beyond redemption. I -hmm. made a mistake. Can I resolve it? Yes, I can. How do I rectify this criminal behavior that I exemplified? Well, you have to get yourself some kind of training, emotional intelligence training, skill development. There's so many different things that we lack in those environments because the compulsory education system is failing as a whole because there's no resources for proper education. I mean, I'm just... I'm going back and forth here on a lot of different things. But I remember when I dropped out, Cassie, I dropped out because I was doing the same math in America in ninth grade mm. that I already did in Argentina in fifth grade. And they put me in some program called SARP, student at risk. Fuck you. My... <laughs> yeah. I, you can't teach. I could teach your class. I mean, the fact that they told me I'm at risk because I didn't want to pay attention because I already knew what they were teaching me is shocking.
0: Well, it goes back to what you were saying about the gangs. Or Like, listen. If they had actually listened instead of judging you based off what they saw, if they listened to your story and knew that you had already learned all this, Mm -hmm. things might have been very different. You might have become like, I don't know what programs exist, like a teacher's assistant or a tutor Mm -hmm. for other kids who didn't get it. But because people don't listen and learn your story and they judge off what they see, Mm -hmm. things go very differently.
1: Our education program, even averaging the best schools in America, is two to four years behind the international standard. And that's including the best schools. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to a shitty school, you're you're years behind where you're supposed to be.
2: All this stuff that you Mm -hmm. see here, I mean, the compulsory education is a joke. It really is a freaking joke. This is something that I have had a hard time with for a while that when I have a kid who's troubled and he's dealing with difficult situations in the schools because they're judging Mm. him because he's maybe not emotionally mature enough, has academic deficiencies or whatever the case may be. I tell the parents, listen, pull them out before they send them to alternative schools. Those are are the worst because that alternative school fuels the school to prison Mm. pipeline. That's where they get their candidates. They go from regular school to alternative school to the judiciary. And so I tell parents, listen, you might be better suited having your kid get his GED or his high school diploma homeschooled and then getting him a job and getting him practical life experiences, even at an early age, because at school you have some educators who are lacking motivation. The resources are bad. And if they're in a title one school, good luck with that future. Good luck.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see, like, I think teachers are vastly underpaid in general, and I have to try and put myself in their shoes if I were dealing with a class. And that's the thing, everything is standardized, but you can't... I think my favorite thing I ever saw is, like, if you have a shark and an eagle, right? Mm -hmm. Both are near apex predators, they're great at what they do at survival, but if you test them based on the same standards, if you test them on catching prey, they'll both ace it. If you test the eagle on swimming it's going to fail. But that doesn't mean it's not any better than the shark. They're just different. So in schools, if you have all these standard tests Mm -hmm. and processes and policies, it's not one size fits all. And the kids who are left behind are the ones who just, they don't work that way. And that's okay. But it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that they're any less than, but they're the ones who get penalized by getting moved to the alternative schools by being called at risk.
2: Right. And I couldn't agree with you more. The reality is, is we can't solve The problems we have today in the education system with the methodologies that we have been implementing for decades, because we realize now stats show that kids are, they're inspired by different things, Mm -hmm. right? Like one kid might be more vocational oriented while the other one is education oriented. And so you have to be able to target them. and. Find a way to create a targeted system for them, not a universal system. Everybody does math, English, language arts, blah, blah. So everybody's got to do these same things. Well, guess what? Some kids might be better at art. Some kids might be better at music. And when those programs are lacking in resource, they'll never self actualize, And then they feel like they don't fit in. Right.
0: It's almost like you need to move the college collegiate format to earlier on, where you can sort of test, not test for your skills, but what you're interested in and play mm-hmm. to those strengths. So you still kind of get a general baseline understanding of math and science, but... I don't remember anything from my high school math class. Like, it has no bearing on my life whatsoever
2: now. And look, I want to, without saying names, perfect example this morning. I represent a lot of young kids. I hate, you know, we talked about certain terms. So this young individual, and he's in court for some, in my opinion, in not typical defense attorney fashion, but it's a BS charge, but the school has to do whatever they want to do, right? Anyways, we're in front of this judge, and the requirements were, look, it's your first time ever being in trouble, do some anger management, do some community service, keep a B average, and I'll dismiss your case. Okay, well, the kid had two A's, one B, and three D's. Okay, Mm. the semester just started. The judge is like, you're failing. And my position was, well, he's not failing. He's got two A's and a B and three D's. If effort was the issue, he'd be failing all of them. And guess what? You start looking at the classes, it's British literature. Who gives a shit? He's got a 61 in that. Why are we fucking teaching him that anyway? He's doing great in math. He's doing great in audiovisual technologies. He's doing great. And the court is saying he's failing. No, he's not. He's failing at the subjects he doesn't care about. Mm -hmm. He did his anger management. He did his community service. He did everything he was supposed to do. But now we want to punish this kid. So the judge kept the case open and says, hey, we're going to come back when his grades are up. And he's like, my grades are never going up because I never give a shit about this class. But now he's got to suck it up. But see, this is a prime Mm. example. Like what you were saying is we keep giving kids educational resources that don't matter to them rather than finding out what they care about and feeding them that.
0: And I feel like sometimes if privilege comes into play, like I was a British literature major, like I love it
2: mm-hmm. when it comes yeah. <laughs> to So you course. probably got an A in that. Yeah,
0: but math, mm-hmm. I'm awful at it. Like I could barely pass game theory, which is literally just breaking down. I mean, we did count cards, but how to play games right. and mm-hmm. all the odds and that. And it just, my mind looks at numbers and it just doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. In the same way, I'm sure some kids look at British literature and they don't get it or they don't care. Right. And how can you force yourself? I mean, think now as an adult, Adults have so much freedom to pick and choose what they want to invest their time in. And even if you're like, well, I hate my job and I sit there for eight hours a day and I do what I hate. That's still a choice you make. It may be a forced choice. It may be really hard to get out of it, but it is a choice that you make to do that job. As a kid, you don't have a choice to sit back Mm -hmm. and say, "Britlet isn't Mm -hmm. for me. I'd rather take another AV class. I'd rather get some real world experience. You're forced to do these things and then you're punished for not being able to do
2: them. Right. And see, you and I can have a conversation about it and make sense of it. But you go to the court system, and it's so rigid.
0: and Black and white, Mm yeah. Right, and
2: the kid's so well-spoken, super respectful to the court. And it's like, the parents are saying there's no behavior issues at home. And it's like, do you want to do anything you can to force him onto probation so you can collect that money? Because we'll get into that in a little bit later. Because he
0: didn't memorize Jane Austen. Right, I mean, give me a break.
2: But the goal is, let's put him on probation, let's collect that $50 a month Mm -hmm. from him, and he becomes an economic tool for the criminal justice system.
0: Because all the prisons here are privately owned.
2: Not does that all, play into um, it or most of them? That does play into it. That's being phased out now. Okay. But the reality is that there's other ways that the system is making money. And I can give you a lot of different examples. For example, Cisco phone systems. When oh you're God. charging people $25 for a 15-minute phone call and you're working a minimum wage job, so you'd have to work basically the whole day to have an hour-long conversation with your loved one. But why do they want to charge like that? Because the shareholders receiving dividends from Cisco – are heavily invested in those prices being the same.
0: Are these calls from prison?
2: Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. No. It all goes back to the shareholder, right? So if the shareholder is making dividend because the company is maximizing its profits, everybody's happy from the corporate side of things. But these jails require people to fill them up so that these products and services are provided, therefore yielding those dividends. So you got Aramark that provides food, you got Cisco with the phones, Hanes with the clothes, Dove with the soap, all these companies want people locked up because they're making money off of the products.
0: And the problem is you're looking at these individuals as products in a bottom line rather than people who have a chance to, like you said earlier, course correct Mm -hmm. and get better.
2: Of course. And then you get further into this and you start going to certain prisons where fortune 500 corporations will come in and say, okay, we're going to create an assembly line for our products. These guys are Mm -hmm. eligible for building these products. We're not going to pay them anything, but we're going to give them a job to keep them busy. Well, Talk about maximizing profits yeah. Ma- the margins. So now you've got forced consumerism and then on top of that slavery because you're literally not paying people to do work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I can sound real cynical if we get deep into this stuff. But the thing is, if you peel the layers back, you'll start seeing the truth. You know, and I think a lot of people don't want to see the truth. They they want to believe whatever they hear on um, their preferred media mm-hmm. outlets. And instead of digging deep and looking at the numbers here, the criminal justice system is an economic tool that used me. Yeah. And that's why I pursue the knowledge the way I pursue it because they almost swallowed me up. I mean, 13 arrests. I was at some point I fired my I was like, listen, public defender, I got this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I know the evidentiary rules at this point. Right. Defend myself. But yeah, I saw how it was working and I realized this doesn't make sense.
0: And I think a lot of people, too, either don't realize what is going on in the prison system or have this. And I think it's personally mistaken mentality that, well, you did the crime, so you mm-hmm. should be stripped of every single right that you've ever had. And I don't I just personally don't agree with that. Right. Or if you have been convicted, I'd rather say you've been convicted of something like, should you be forced to work for pennies on the dollar just so you can phone your family at home? Like, I don't think that is something that anyone could agree to. Like, should yeah, you I be mean, stuck in a system that forced you're just, labor? Yeah. You're going to end up back there again because there's no support tools for you on the outside
2: whatsoever. You know what the saddest part about that is, Cassie? After you've been doing that for 20 years and you're paroled or released, it's heartbreaking to watch these individuals' gestures, demeanors when they get released because they feel more at home in the mm-hmm. system. And so that's why the recidivism rates are so high.
0: It's safe, they know it.
2: Yes. And they're not giving them the resources to reintegrate or reacclimate to a society that has completely evolved and changed. I mean, I have my best friend, Joey Torres. He got a 15-year bid. We can get into that as we go back to my narrative. But when he got out, it affected him. I could see it in his yeah. face. He would be timid at restaurants, you know, kind of like not wanting to make too much of an issue of asking a question to see if he can get what he wanted. And it's just like, dude, you deserve to be here. You paid your dues. You paid more than what you're supposed to pay. And yet you're now feeling like you don't belong because the system breaks you down to that.
0: And you're, I'm sure, constantly afraid that one misstep is Mm going to land you back in there.
2: Yeah, he got out. And six days after he got out, the parole officer calls him and says, hey, uh, so there's a $10,000 balance on your account for your fines when you ready to make a payment. And I was like, Joey, tell the guy to fucking call me because I'll be your shield. Hey, buddy, he's been out for six days. Right. He doesn't have a resume. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a pot to piss in or a stamp to put a letter on the mail to send it to you. So maybe relax a little bit.
0: And that's the thing, like, I don't. I think people think that you do the time you get released and then it's life as normal. And I'm sorry if this is a callous comparison, like you may hate it, but it's honestly like the best insight that I know of that I've gotten into, been able to see into some of the intricacies of the prison system, but Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. In the last season, when the main character gets released, I won't give anything away. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in case you haven't seen it, but just having to pay the fees and the fines and the limited job opportunities Mm -hmm. and the hoops she has to go through and her family's abandoning her. And I was like, oh, she's taken out of the prison system, right, where she has a routine, meals, even though it's still awful, but thrown to the wolves and expected to swim across basically the Pacific Ocean by herself on the first try. And I just there is absolutely, from what I see, no good support for anyone who has been incarcerated
2: mm-hmm. yeah I would agree with you. I think you're hitting all of these points on the head because the reality is is how do can you expect someone to get out after 20 year sentence and then just figure it out just figure it out get yeah. housing get employment start paying your bills even though everything's automated your car starts with a button now your phones have a screen on them I mean how can you wrap your mind around putting people in that position you, how
1: you step back into a completely different world right A world that you're not aware of and a world that you've literally
2: taken a pause in for 20 years. Right, You go from the Flintstones to the Jetsons without the transition. And all of a sudden, you're kind of like, I don't belong here anymore. I just want to go back.
0: And it's a world that's not even set up to help you if you wanted to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure as somebody who has been incarcerated, finding a full-time gainful employment is I'm guessing really difficult because yes. people have stereotypes in their yeah. mind and they make assumptions.
2: I mean, I know that from experience. The fact that I applied to 50 law schools, 48 of them basically sent me the same letter. No, kid, we don't need your money that bad. We don't need wow. it. You know, and it's like, if you, maybe you talked to me, if maybe you understood my circumstances, is maybe you realized that I could be maybe your best alum ever mm-hmm. if you gave me a chance, let's just talk about it. I mean, my book is saturated with these type of character trying situations the bar the board of bar examiners i mean they grilled me so hard it was like they were trying to push me away and i'm talking about florida specifically georgia was really kind to me because i had the government and a couple other well-known individuals vouch for me. But yeah, the system is so jacked up. It's really sad and it's hurtful to see people go through those things. And you're seeing not only just Orange is the New Black, what about when they see us? I don't know if you've Mm -hmm. got a chance to watch that. I haven't yet. Oh my God. I mean, first of all, we know they've been exonerated, right? And if you watch the process of how the DA manipulated the storylines and the facts to put these kids in this position, and then even they had DNA evidence that would... Refute the government's position. They still didn't introduce it, which is a huge Brady violation and uh, You know this is happening everywhere
0: everyone has a story to spin mm-hmm. or some ulterior motive and you just have to look out for it That's mm-hmm. why I tell people I'm like you can't believe everything you see even if all the facts make sense There's always another story and you have to read between the lines and do your own additional research in order to come to the correct conclusion But so can we talk a little bit about RED, your nonprofit, Rehabilitation Enables Dreams? I love that it is based off your street name.
2: Yes, that's right. I
0: think Mm -hmm. that's super clever. So what do you guys do and how can we help?
2: So what we're doing now, and I get really excited about this stuff because it's amazing. We've created College in the Courtroom, okay? So it's a 12-month modular program. We've done a ton of research. In 2011, Nathan Deal, the then governor, signed an executive order that established the Georgia Council on Criminal Justice Reform, a bipartisan interbranch panel of individuals studying recidivism, the Department of Juvenile Justice, the Board of Pardons and Parole, all that stuff that is affecting high crime and high recidivism rate. Every year they put out a report in February that's basically like a roadmap. This is how we fix the problem. So I've been following this roadmap for years since it started. And when I graduated law school in 2012, I decided that, my life's purpose was going to be to fight recidivism, to end recidivism, and to change the way the criminal justice system works. So based on this roadmap provided by them, we created a curriculum. This curriculum that we created trains individuals on social, civic, and financial literacy. So we do training on emotional intelligence, anger management, self-control, interpersonal relationship development, personal awareness, and this stuff is huge simply because they don't teach you at the compulsory education Mm -hmm. level. We know you can't really increase your IQ once you reach a certain level of cognitive skill, but you can increase your EQ, which in turn allows you to socially mobilize, right?
0: EQ is emotional?
2: Emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So if we can teach them emotional intelligence. So our program, they're given the option when they come into the program. We have an agreement with the district attorney in DeKalb County. They monitor their docket and they look at who's a nonviolent offender, who can benefit from educational resources. And if they have the eligibility in place, let's put them into this program. We bring them in and we say, listen, you don't need a lawyer. If you complete the 12 months of the program at no cost to you, we will dismiss the case at the end of the 12 months. So the incentive is there. The carrot is an easy one, right? In the second month, we do a level of service intake. The reason this is important is going back to the school system, very similar approach. You can't fix your problem with the same universal tact. Same for you. So we learned these individuals on a personal level. We had a psychiatrist and a psychologist prepare this questionnaire so that we can elicit answers to questions without triggering trauma that would have them shut down and stonewall us, right? So we create this profile on this individual, and then we interview mentors with common ground, similar experiences, Mm. or that would somehow work well with this individual. And then we match the mentor to the mentee. We immediately go into social, civic, financial literacy, as I mentioned. Once we teach them emotional intelligence, we go into the, the civic stuff. It's so important for kids to understand how to assert their rights properly how to have proper police citizen encounters and how to deescalate when you have an undereducated rogue officer, which we're seeing everywhere now. Right? So we teach them those things instead of having these combative encounters with police officers, they're calm. They understand the mm-hmm. bill of rights. They understand how the law works, not how to break the law. And so they communicate effectively and they're taught that if you have a rogue officer that's trying to meet a quota, you're not going to beat the case on the scene. So you have to establish the situation where later when you go to jail, now you will be rectified through a lawyer. So the kids eat it up because they want to win these battles. And then, you know, I mean, to believe that there's no quotas out here is naive. Then we go into the Your Voice Matters, and we explain to them the importance of civic engagement. I hate the fact that the majority of our kids, when they first come in, I say, Who's the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons? And, you know, shockingly, they all know, even though he's not very good at this moment in time. (laughs) Matt Ryan, everybody, Matt Ryan. They're much better than I am.
0: I thought Bill Belichick was the Atlanta Falcons coach the other day. (laughs) I think he's
2: the Patriots. He's the best ever, yeah, (laughs) the Patriots. But yeah, so they'll know who the quarterback is. And I'm like, okay, great. Who's the district attorney presiding over your case? Mm. Not an answer. And I'm like, guys, gals, listen, you've got to understand how to be present in your own life. And they're like who's the what does the district attorney do? The district attorney is the prosecuting official that has discretion over your case. Her name is Sherry Boston. You need to know who she is. Even though she's a law enforcement figure, she's actually one of the kindest, most intelligent, compassionate people you'll ever meet. That's why she has programs like this. So we teach them these things. Then the best example we can give them, I don't know, are you guys familiar with the cash bond issue that we've resolved mm-hmm. here? So we've been talking about this at the state level for a while. It's not happening now. Can
0: we explain it anyway for people who listen and who who don't know?
2: So what has happened here in Atlanta is that there is no more cash bonds for nonviolent offenses. It's an enumerated list of offenses that if you get arrested for, you can do an ROR. You're signing yourself out on your own reconnaissance. And so you can go back to your job. You can go back to your family. You can go back to your life. And you can defend this case without being completely derailed for your future. And the cash bond was a problem because individuals who couldn't pay it
1: would then end up being in jail and just created a cycle of not being able to actually defend themselves.
2: Correct. And the jails are at maximum capacity because it takes, you know, the criminal justice system is on such a long timeline that you might get arrested in 2018, but your case isn't adjudicated until 2022. So you're sitting all this time mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden the government gets a hair across their ass. They want to dismiss the case. You just wasted four years of your life. And you how do you even get right. back to your life then?
0: And how is that legal? Because then we all have a right to a fair, like a speedy trial. Four years doesn't...
2: You could, but you'd also have to be able to afford an attorney. The public defender has to have the availability to do those things. And so there's so many compromises involved in the process. That's why being able to sign yourself out and getting an attorney of choice, going to talk to the public defender rather than waiting for somebody to come visit you in your jail to help you out with your issue is a very important tool. And that happened because of Keisha Lance Bottoms. She's the one who started this here in Atlanta. And God bless her because she's basically emptied the jails And we haven't seen a higher crime rate because of it. So it's not like, oh, the fear is that we're safeguarding our community because we don't want to increase crime by just letting people sign out. Well, where is the increased crime? We could have done this decades Mm -hmm. ago and we would have the results that she's creating now.
0: So it's effective.
2: It's brilliant is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's working well and it's changing people's lives because what they're working on now is an intervention program, something like RED, that, hey, you sign yourself out. We want to teach you why you can't go steal when you're hungry. OK, so if they continue down this path, they're going to reform the criminal justice system in a way where taxpayers dollars are being used more for restorative justice rather than punitive sanctions. So the reason why this all came up is because the kids in the program and I explained to them, look, she was up against Norwood or was it? Norwood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she was North up North. Against North. Yeah. 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 So she was up against Norwood. Now, I don't think that she would have signed the same executive order. But so we have the situation we have now. The difference in votes less than a thousand mm-hmm. votes in the Speaking
0: election of, for mayor yeah. for yes Atlanta.
2: i think it might have been like less than 800 actually and so i tell these kids look this elected official who if you knew who she was and you knew how to vote properly and you realize what her policies are and how they benefit you you can go and put a, your name in, in the hat for voting for her and you would change the lives of you your family and your community permanently because you're voting for people that have your best interests And so they're like, oh my God, that's how that happened? Yes. If you explain to them in plain English, they get it. Mm. And all of a sudden they're like, where do I get my voter's registration card? Where do I go fill out my ballot? So all of a sudden you're stimulating them in a way that, hey, my voice matters. If I do my part, I help my community. And so this is how you get that trust with these kids. They're all of a sudden they're First of all, you're not charging me for the program. You're teaching me how to assert my rights. You're helping me socially mobilize. Why do you care so much? It's not that we don't care so much being the thing. It's that this is the right thing to do. I don't know these people. I don't know them, but I know that them being mistreated because they made a mistake is not the right thing to do.
0: But in a world with a broken system where it looks like people don't care, it's really hard to trust a stranger basically like you come in there and you're like let me change your life and and you're like what i'm sure the whole time they're like what's the catch when is the other shoe gonna drop am i gonna finish this course and you tell me that i owe 10k like where's the loophole that or the pothole that i'm about to fall through
2: right and historical memory will tell you police are there to punish me the Mm -hmm. judges are going to try to lock me up and the prosecutors want to give me the heaviest sentence possible so they're perceived as unfriendly and so these kids are like oh i don't want to deal with this my presence has shifted that a little bit because they realize that I'm a defense attorney. I'm not a judge. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not an officer. I'm one of them.
0: And you can also paint a different picture of all these different people in these legal fields as well. Like, yeah, you may get the rogue ones, but at the same time, these are people too and they're doing a job and Mm -hmm. I just find it fascinating. Like, I feel like this is the first step into prison reform because the whole system needs to be uprooted. And I'm not saying get rid of punishing people who do crimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you are convicted, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but it needs to be reformed. We need to see more programs like this in the works so that people can go back to being a part of society if they choose and sort of having a normal life again.
1: And you guys really are taking that 360 degree approach, right? Which we don't do so often. Mm -hmm. And the programs that we have had in the past would do one thing or the other, Mm -hmm. but it really does take this whole village to make this change.
2: Yes. And so you bring an interesting point, Muneer, because... One of the things that I appreciate but also dislike that has happened is that there is a law on the books now that says if a judge implements and administers an accountability court program, something like us, into their courtrooms, then they get a stipend. So mm-hmm. they're making money for doing it. So where does the problem come in with that? These people are not. Morally incentivized right. they're economically incentivized. <laughs> and so the diversion program instead of looking like us like a real curriculum like college in the courtroom They'll say hey uh, watch this theft deterrent video do uh, some Community service hours and don't do that shit again because it's illegal and that's it and guess what no life skills Reintegrated into the same circumstance. You didn't transition them into a higher platform. And so That's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. I see it a lot so I do want to go back to your narrative as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure we finish that story. Did you win that first fight?
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Real Tall Tales. We're going to pick it up here next week with part two talking to David Lee Windiger. He'll give us the results of this fight, a story about the 19 cars he owned but couldn't legally drive, bribing cops, false accusations, his nonprofit based off his street name, and why you should always choose impact over income. You can get David Lee Windicher's book, The American Dream, History in the Making, on Amazon. You can also check out his nonprofit, Red Rehabilitation Enables Dreams.
2: If you guys want to find out about our restorative justice program and the curriculum that we implement in the courthouses here in Georgia, you can go to our website. It's stoprecidivism.org. And just for the sake of those who are not spelling me champions, it's R E C I D I V I S M, stoprecidivism.org. We'd love for you guys to check us out.
1: We'll see you next week with a new episode, but in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.